The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. All right. You glad you came today? All right. How many of you right now, you know, you're, you're excited about this passage. You are really into this, this topic, and you're thinking right now, wow, I bet this is going to be really encouraging, really edifying this morning. Hmm? How many of you maybe on the other side are thinking, you know what, I feel a little bit uncomfortable right now at the moment, and I'm not really sure where this is, where this is all heading. Listen, I, I want all of us to be excited about this passage because it's God's word to us. It's God's word to us. Like we're, we're talking about the role of men and women in the church this morning, specifically in terms of leadership in, in the church. And praise God, he hasn't left us in the dark on this matter. Right? He, he addresses it clearly in his word, and we should always rejoice to hear the word of God and apply it to our lives. Like that's just part of what it means to be a Christian. And so we should rejoice this morning that we have God's word here. Now, I also want to acknowledge, listen, I understand some of the uncomfortability in the room, okay? Um, I know that within this room, likely right now, we have some people who are um, concerned about what's known as the slippery slope. You know what I'm talking about? The slippery slope, okay? On the one side, there may be some here who any talk about empowering women in the church, it sounds like a slippery slope leading to unorthodox liberalism, right? On the other side, um, I'm sure that there are those here who any talk about what God's word might prohibit a woman from doing, that sounds like a slippery slope leading to dangerous hyperfundamentalism, right? Do you like that drawing? I made it myself. I was really excited when I found the little sled icon thing in uh, Keynote. I was, thank you for putting that in there, Apple. That was, th- that was generous of you. Listen, for, for some of us, right, we feel a sense of discomfort around this text and topic, and that graph up there actually kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Maybe you've seen people you know and, and love slide down one of those slopes. Not on a sled, but slide down the slope, right? Maybe you found yourself in a church in the past whose practice resembles the end of one of those slopes. Women in the room, your experiences, right? In, in the world, inside the church, but also outside the church, in workplaces or your family of origin or perhaps even your own marriage and so on, it shapes how you approach this topic and therefore this text. Perhaps you've seen this issue become divisive in a church before. And therefore, you've got a bit of fear and trepidation around the topic. Listen, if I've just described you at all, or even gotten close to describing this morning, here's what I want you to hear. Here's what I want all of us to hear this morning. We don't have to fear the slippery slope. God's word gives us a grip. It's like ice spikes for your shoes in the winter, okay? It's the chains for your tires because Scripture isn't actually a slope. God's Word is level ground. It's not slippery. It's steady. It hasn't changed in the last two years or the last 2,000 years. And it's not about to start changing now. God's word is the sure-footed ground upon which we stand. And so this morning, I, I, want us to, I want to invite us to look not to the slippery slope ditches to the left or to the right. They're scary. I get it. I want instead for us to fix our eyes upon the glorious, beautiful, non-slippery, biblical road. God's glorious, beautiful truth for the the role of men and women in the church. Here's the big idea, okay? God has blessed us all, men and women together, with a vast variety of spiritual gifts, and we seek to nourish, to, to nurture, to equip, to empower the use of those gifts for his glory and our good within the proper boundary that Scripture provides for the local church. Now, 
three caveats. You're lucky I whittled it down to three. Okay, first, part of what we're doing this morning is purposefully clarifying and establishing our practical theology of complementarianism around here. That's a big word, right? What does it mean? Complementarianism is the doctrine that God has created men and women equal yet distinct. Okay, equal in essence, equal in being and worth and value, yet distinct in that they have different complementary roles. In particular this morning, again, we're talking about roles in the church, but this doctrine also applies and has application into the home. So equal but distinct, and in that distinction we find complementarity. We complement each other. Now, we've always held to the doctrine of complementarianism around here as a church. That should be no surprise to you if you're a member or if you've read our doctrinal statement. It's pretty clear in there. Okay, we've always held that doctrine, but we also haven't always been super clear about how that plays out. Again, this morning, in particular, we're talking about how it plays out practically in various roles within the church. Some of what you will hear this morning will therefore sound very familiar. Okay, our holding of this doctrine is not new. Some of what you'll hear this morning, though, will be new as we flush that out in greater particularity what this actually looks like in our local church. Second caveat, um, this sermon and a position paper that we've created that we'll put out on Realm this week, it isn't a response to the cultural moment, okay? And, And I wish I didn't have to say that, but I think I do. Uh, This conversation for us began back in 2017, okay, when Ben and Craig were going through our elder development process. Through that process, it became clear uh, to us that while we all held theologically to complementarianism, that there was some confusion or, or just lack of clarity, really, on what and how that could and should play out in our church. And so we spent 2018 pouring over God's word together, this passage, along with passages like 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, doing hard work in those texts, reading, studying God's word together, studying and reading other good scholarly level stuff on those texts. We met lots of times to to flesh that all out. It wasn't always just like, hey, we're all on the same page here. In 2020, then, I attempted to take all that we had learned and worked out together and capture it in a position paper. Again, we'll post that this week. We then invited multiple women from our body who currently serve in various leadership roles to enter into this with us. And we read that document together and they had lots of great questions and lots of great feedback. And we revised that paper based upon their great questions and feedback. And then we reviewed it all again together. And I say all that to say that we're not reacting to any sort of cultural moment. This has been in the two pillars crockpot behind the scenes for about five years, right? The whole point of which has been to clarify and establish our practical theology of complementarianism with regard to leadership in the local church. Ours, okay, for two pillars. There's wonderful other churches in our city, in our networks that that hold doctrinally to complementarianism who might, you know, practically apply that differently in their churches. But at the end of the day, we're tasked with applying it here, which leads me to caveat number three. Within the, the grand scheme, like the realm of complementarianism, there's a spectrum. Okay, call it strict complementarianism or soft complementarianism. I've heard broad, narrow, thick, thin, generous, whatever, all right? My aim this morning is to help clarify, without putting a cute little subtitle on it, where we're at on that spectrum and what that looks like here. However, I also want to point out there's boundaries to the spectrum, On the far left end of the spectrum, outside the boundaries of the spectrum of complementarianism, you have egalitarianism. And egalitarianism contrasts with complementarianism in that, while both hold that men and women are equal before God, egalitarianism eliminates the distinctiveness with which God created us. It says there are to be no distinctions with respect to what men and women can do or how they're to lead in the local church. On the far right end of that spectrum, outside the boundaries of the spectrum of complementarianism, you have patriarchalism. And patriarchalism contrasts with complementarianism in that, while both hold that men and women are distinct, patriarchalism takes that distinction further to essentially functionally treating women as if they're not actually equal with men before God. If you hold to one or the other of those far ends, you know, outside the spectrum of complementarianism, listen, you're always going to feel a little uncomfortable at two pillars. That's not what we hold to, not because, um, you know, we made this up. It's not what we hold to because we don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. 
If you hold to one of those ends of the spectrum, listen, we love you, but this isn't going to change for us. I'd love to meet with you and talk about that. And after hearing the sermon today and, and reading through our position paper, you'd like to wrestle with that some more. I'm, I'm game for that. And listen, holding to one of these ends doesn't mean you can't worship with us here, be a part of this church. Just know that's not where we are. We're not egalitarian. We're not patriarchal. And our doctrinal statement makes that clear. And within the boundaries of complementarianism, right? Uh, like I said, there's a spectrum, and there's certainly room for disagreement and discussion on how it all plays out practically. We want to be patient with those who might disagree with where we land on that spectrum with respect to church leadership, and we'd love to continue to dialogue with you um, over all this in a loving and grace-filled way, right? Now, with all of that said, you know, let's get to the text already. First Timothy chapter 2 is page 991 in the Pew Bible. Here's what I want us to look at this morning in the text in, in 1 Timothy 2. Number one, um, we're going to look at what it doesn't mean. Okay, There's a lot, I think, of bad interpretations and applications of this text and ones that are connected to it. I want to debunk some of that. Okay, secondly, we'll look at what it does mean, so positively. What do we learn and what do we need to apply from God's word here to our lives within the church? And then lastly, we'll zoom out just a little bit and talk about what does it mean practically here? Okay, what it doesn't mean, what it does mean, and what does it mean here? So 1 Timothy chapter 2, go ahead and get turned there in your copy of scripture. Um, a little bit of context is helpful anytime we're looking at a passage like this, lest we fall victim to you know, proof texting or something like that. So context is helpful. 1 Timothy is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was pastoring at that time at a city called Ephesus. It was written around the mid-60s AD, okay? And Paul is writing to give instruction to Timothy with regard to the church, the ecclesia, there in Ephesus. In fact, he tells us that's why he's writing the letter in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. Why? So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, the ecclesia of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Okay, so Paul is writing to Timothy and through Timothy to the church in Ephesus to help him, to help them know how God's people are to behave in the church, in the corporate assembly of the church. Remember, that's what that word ecclesia means. It's the called out together, the, the assembled together ones. It's this understanding then that shapes how we read the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is giving instruction about the church as it gathers as a church and therefore how it functions as a household or some translations say family of God. In 1 Timothy 2 verses 8 through 10, for example, Paul, what he's doing is giving instructions to men and women so that, again, referencing chapter 3, they may know how to behave in the assembly. What's he say? Look at, look at verse 8. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. By saying every place there, by the way, Paul is likely referring to the various places in which Christians in Ephesus met for corporate worship, probably house churches at that time. But the emphasis here in verse 8, I would, gar, I would argue, is, is not on whether the brothers in the body are lifting their hands when they pray in worship. The emphasis here, I would argue, is on the word holy. Our physical posture isn't the point. Not the primary point. Our inner piety is. Similarly, when he addresses women, verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. With good works. And so women, he says, are to dress with modesty and self-control. Secondly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire. These things, like in our day, flaunt wealth and draw attention to themselves. Instead, Paul writes, women are to clothe themselves with good works, with godliness. Again, like with the men, the emphasis here isn't necessarily primarily on outer appearances, but the inner attitude, the inner piety. Peter clarifies this for us in 1 Peter 3. When he writes in addressing Christian wives, do not let your adorning be external, 
Okay, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing that you wear. Now, just in case you're wondering, Peter's not saying don't wear clothes, right? He's saying don't let your adorning be external. It's not the main point, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Okay, so listen, for both men and women here, the primary point isn't how you look. The fundamental problem that Paul is addressing in 1 Timothy 2 isn't that the men weren't charismatic enough in their prayer and worship, or that the, it's not fundamentally that the women were wearing crop tops and bling. Like, that's not what's going on here, right? His main focus is on inner maturity and the corresponding, then, outward action. This context is important to understand because sometimes people want to come to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and they'll say, see, we don't make men raise their hands while praying. I was looking around this morning. Not very many men were raising their hands when we were worshiping in here. You know, we, we don't make uh, women, you know, unbraid their hair. We got women in the room right now with braided hair, right? And therefore, it's all just cultural. We can throw out the whole passage, right? No, it's not. Yes, the, the raising of hands and the braiding of hair was cultural to a certain extent, but the inner piety, the inner maturity, the adorning of the heart, none of that is cultural. And we must never throw that out. That leads us then into verse 11. And, and you know what? Let's actually read verse 11 out loud together. Verse 11 and 12. It, like the rest of it, it's the word of God, right? Um, but this in particular, I think these two verses would be really good for us probably just to, to read out loud together. We got it up here on the screen. Let's read this together. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet. That's the meat of it right there, isn't it? I mean, that, that's the sort of thing that our culture calls bigotry, right? That, that's the sort of thing that, that our culture calls oppressive, sexist, discriminatory. And yet, all we've done is read the Word of God together. And therefore, we're not to be ashamed of what we just read aloud. No, the word that we must use as Christians to describe those two verses is biblical. Biblical. And yet we see this text, and again, others related to it. I'm thinking of the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, talks about head coverings. I'm, talking about the, I'm thinking about the passage in 1 Corinthians 14, right, that says that women should keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. We see this text in 1 Timothy 2, and others related to it, used in all sorts of ways, which means we really need to understand and labor and reason from the scriptures to understand what does it actually mean. Let's start with what it doesn't mean. Number one, it doesn't mean that all women are to submit to all men. Okay, that gets you into patriarchalism. Some have taken it to mean this. Now, the Bible does talk about wives submitting to their own husbands. That's Titus 2, verse 5, and 1 Peter 3, verse 1, and Ephesians 5, verse 22. That's an aspect of complementarianism as it plays out in the home, and that's a sermon for a different day. Okay, but none of those texts, nor this one, nor any other text in the scripture commands all women to submit to all men. But if you've ever been in a context that has taught this, all women must submit to all men or practice this. Perhaps even leverage the Bible and passages like this to falsely justify it. That's, if you've experienced that, like, I'm actually sorry. I'm sorry. I know women who have been deeply hurt by this in this church in other churches, I've heard horror stories from within Christianity, horror stories from marriages where those verses I've just referenced have been used in abusive, sinful, horrifying ways. And it's disgusting. It's awful. Number two, this text doesn't mean women are to be absolutely silent in the church. You just read scripture out loud, right? You must agree. Some have taken it to mean that, though, especially from the last part of verse 12, which says she is to remain quiet. But the problem with the simplistic interpretation of absolute silence is the rest of the Bible. Okay, when God's people crossed the Red Sea, do you remember this? When they sang a song on the other side, do you remember who led God's people in song? Moses did first, okay, right? But then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. 
And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, Miriam wasn't leading worship that day because they couldn't find a dude to do it. Moses was there. No, she was exercising the gifts that God had given her. In the New Testament, it's another controversial passage that needs careful attention, but in 1 Corinthians 11, we read of women praying and prophesying. The context, I would argue, there is again the ecclesia, the church gathered together. Even in 1 Corinthians 14, the passage that talks about women keeping silent in the churches, it's verse 34 if you've been looking for it, okay? It can't have absolute silence in mind. That would contradict itself three chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 11. No, the point that Paul is making there has to do specifically with interpreting prophecy, which has a, had an authoritative function in the early church in the way that they worshipped. Returning then to 1 Timothy 2, Paul's words that a woman is to remain quiet also has to do with an authoritative function, authoritative teaching, as we'll see here shortly when we look at what the text does mean. Number three, this text doesn't mean that women cannot teach, period. Teaching is a spiritual gift. It's on the list in Romans 12. I can't find any limitations in general in that passage or any other passage on spiritual gifts that, that limit the gifts strictly to men. Okay, if that were true, we'd have to start, start talking about which men and which women are, have the spiritual gift of serving. Do some, you know, is, are some of those is serving or giving or some of those gifts restricted to men or women? No, it's right there with the other gifts. Teaching. Titus 2, 3 through 5, of course, instructs older women to teach and train younger women. There's multiple passages that refer to the, the teaching of, of children, which doesn't seem to be restricted to men, as far as I can tell. But as we read broadly in the Bible, what we find is that women aren't constrained in using their teaching gift just in teaching other women and children. In Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila pull Apollos aside. Most commentators find great significance in the fact that Priscilla is named first. It likely means that she initiated this encounter. But they pull Apollos aside, one of the great preachers of the early church. That's who Apollos was. He's described as eloquent, competent in the scriptures, having been instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, and bold. But Priscilla heard him, and Aquila did too. And they took him aside, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Again, Priscilla likely played a major role in that. Or Colossians 3.16. Again, Paul's addressing men and women in the church of Colossae, and he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And so teaching is a gift. Men and women can possess that gift. There are examples and imperatives in Scripture about using the gift of teaching that don't restrict women to only teaching women and children. In fact, 1 Peter 4.10 encourages, again, men and women as far as I can tell, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so our passage here in 1 Timothy 2 can't mean that women cannot teach, period. It also can't mean that women can only teach women and children. To interpret it that way would be to disregard the rest of Scripture. And one of the most important hermeneutical principles we're to use when reading Scripture and interpreting Scripture is to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Allowing passages that are more clear to help us to understand and interpret passages like 1 Timothy 2 that at least at first blush seem less clear. Number four, it does not mean that women cannot hold any leadership role whatsoever in the church. Okay, when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, those are two distinct things, but they're also related. Like when you read through the, the whole of, of 1 Timothy, which I would encourage you to do, one of the things that you'll find is that Paul is very much writing also to address false teachers who were infiltrating the church. Okay, you can read about them in chapter 4. They were stressing asceticism as a means of spirituality. 
They were even usurping God's design for marriage, forbidding people from getting married. It's like, this was dangerous stuff that was going on. And I point that out because sometimes the issues that we bring up and try to come to this text with, like who can serve communion or take up an offering, are pithy little triflings compared to what was going on in Ephesus. Like some of God's people were being led astray after Satan, he says in chapter 5, verse 15. It was even trickling into the elders, which is likely why he had to give instructions on not being hasty in the laying on of hands and also how to rebuke elders who persisted in sin before the whole body. Like this is one of the reasons why Paul is so concerned in chapter 3 with there being qualified elders in the church. We have to remember, right, like Paul's not just like writing a bunch of random paragraphs in, on random topics throughout his life, and here we have a, a section on the qualifications of elders to turn to, treating the Bible like some random reference manual. No, there's always context. And part of the context for his first letter to Timothy was the false teachers in Ephesus who had departed from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. This is dangerous stuff for the church. It's very dangerous. And Paul's writing because he says, you know what? Somebody has to stop them. Someone has to oversee the church and exercise authority over the church and guard the church from false teaching and wolves. Last week when we talked about who leads the church, One of the things that we saw is that it's the responsibility of elders to exercise oversight in the local church. That's from 1 Peter 5, as well as how the Bible uses the word overseer in general in places like Philippians 1.1. So when you read in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, that it's not permitted for a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, part of what he's communicating is that that's for the elders to do. It's for the appropriate officers of the church to do. That's why he writes, if anyone aspires to the office of elder or overseer, he desires a noble task, chapter 3, verse 1. And therefore, what's in view here isn't the prohibition from any and all leadership positions in the church. No, it's the prohibition from the authoritative office of elder. Those who hold spiritual authority for the authoritative teaching and oversight of the church, those who will have to stand one day before God and give an account for the souls of the flock entrusted to them. Like, hear me really clearly when I, when I say this, that the leadership authority referred to here in 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 isn't assigned to the gender of male. It's assigned to the office of elder, overseer pastors, shepherds of the flock. That's the prohibition. It's not a prohibition for a woman serving communion or taking an offering or leading worship or a team of volunteers. It's not prohibiting a woman serving as a deacon or even leading a discussion in the context of a small group in your home. The prohibition is from the office of elder. Number five, and I'll be brief on this because it's not the point of the sermon, but it's like one of those things like, well, while we're here, women can, this text does not mean that women cannot hold leadership positions over men outside the church. It doesn't mean that. The context for this passage, you'll remember, is Paul giving instructions for how to behave in the household of God, which is the church. Now, I know people who have interpreted this passage differently, making it to mean some of the things that I just said it does not mean who take these things in principle and then apply them to the workplace or apply them in in government. But what I would say is if we interpreted it correctly to begin with and did that same application of principles to those same contexts, we'd end up with very different conclusions. But further, I'm not even 100% convinced we should be, be applying principles from this text to those other contexts from the start because the context of this passage is, in fact, the local church. Which leads us well then into what does it mean? <laughs> it's like, wow, okay, that's what it doesn't mean. Um, what does it mean when we read, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness? I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. It can't just not mean a bunch of things. 
It has to mean something. What does it mean? Well, first, it tells us that the concept of submission is not in and of itself evil. In fact, it's biblical. We've got to acknowledge that. You know, this is probably one of the hardest things, I think, in our day and age to actually surrender to, is this idea of submission. Submission in our day is like a four-letter word. And we're all a little more anti-authoritarian in our flesh than we'll ever admit. You know it's true. Sometimes our reasons for that aren't all bad. Again, women in the room, if you've been abused or oppressed or objectified. If you're married to a man who has wielded the submission part of Ephesians 5 over you while not simultaneously loving you like Christ loved the church, like Paul says immediately after that in Ephesians 5, this passage is hard. But it's not actually talking about that. It's not talking about abusive authority at all. No, this passage is talking about good, godly, God-given authority in the context of a healthy church. Some of you perhaps unfortunately have encountered for yourself or listened to a podcast about the abuse of leadership in the church and your spidey senses go up real fast when we start talking about this, right? And yet the abuse of a good thing doesn't show the thing itself to be bad. But in reaction, sometimes in reaction, we tear down the good, godly, God-given thing because of the abuse of a good, godly, God-given thing. Listen, in our day of cancel culture and deconstructionism, our culture seeks to bring down the whole concept of submission altogether. Where if we carry that all the way out, listen, the end isn't some sort of utopian egalitarianism. The end of that is anarchy. Which God's word says, that, that's not going to end well. I mean, go read the book of Judges, okay? It doesn't end well. We're all called to live lives of submission. We're going to have to start getting more comfortable with that word if we want to be Christians. First and foremost, we are called to live in submission to Jesus, and his word, also to one another, that includes elders to you and all of us to each other as members of the church, but also church member to elders, Christians to governing authorities, children to parents, wives to husbands, employees to employers. If we have a problem with the concept of submission, we're really going to struggle with Christianity in general. Secondly, submission isn't just an outward action. It's an inner attitude. You know, part of us understanding what this passage does mean is to understand that Paul is contrasting two things. Learning quietly with submission and remaining silent, that's contrasted with what? Teaching and exercising oversight. So we've already said it doesn't mean women are to keep absolutely quiet in church. We've also said that verses 8 through 10 have to do not just with outward appearances, but also an inward posture of the heart. This is really important, right? Because you can keep quiet without having a, a, a submissive heart to godly, good-given authority, God-given authority, can't you? Like, you can keep your mouth shut and be really rebellious inside. Submission isn't just an outward action. It's an inner attitude. And thirdly, somewhat most importantly, with all that has been said so far, the primary restriction of women teaching in 1 Timothy 2 has to do with authoritative doctrinal instruction. Something that is entrusted to elders in the scriptures. The word here for teach is used throughout the New Testament primarily for denoting the careful transmission of the good news and life and teachings of Jesus and the authoritative proclamation of God's will to believers in light of it. Throughout Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles Teaching always has a restricted sense of authoritative doctrinal instruction. Teaching and exercising authority are distinct, but they're very closely related. The teaching in mind is teaching that exercises authority or authoritative doctrinal instruction, as I put it. Number four, the exercising of authority is in reference to the work of male elders who were given to the church in part precisely to exercise authority. That authority isn't a blank check. 
Elders aren't an authority in and of themselves. They're held responsible by one another and the church to meet the character qualifications, to teach God's word, shepherd the flock, exercise oversight, not under compulsion but willingly, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in their charge but being examples to the flock. Put it differently and maybe sharpen the point of prohibition again from context, from this context of of Paul's letter to Timothy and these verses in particular, a woman isn't to exercise authority over a man, not because she's a woman, but because she's not an elder. Think about it. Women aren't the only Christians who are to learn quietly and with submissiveness. Non-elder men are to do the same, are they not? Let's not forget about Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. And yet evidently, the circumstances of Ephesus led Paul to directly address the non-elder women because of the current situation. And yet, his instruction isn't temporal. Applying only to Ephesus in this one situation or this one point in time because Paul doesn't ground his instruction in the current situation. He grounds it in creation. Look at verse 13. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. That word for is like because, right? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet because... Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Look what Paul's saying. He's saying, the reason for my instruction is rooted not in the cultural moment. It's rooted not in the fall, as if the reason for all this is the result of the fall. No, he roots it before the fall in creation. Adam was formed first. He was the firstborn. Eve came next. Paul doesn't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man because to do so would violate God's design for the sexes in the created order where the man was given as head and the woman as helpmate. Adam was formed first. He was supposed to be on guard. He was supposed to lead and protect. And instead, when Satan showed up, he was passive and abdicated. And just as Satan was prowling around in the garden seeking to deceive Eve and lead her astray, Satan was also prowling around in the early church in Paul's day seeking to deceive and lead astray. Some have already strayed after Satan, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5. And this had nothing to do with Eve being more susceptible than Adam. Which means 1 Timothy 2 has nothing to do with women being more susceptible than men, you know, more gullible than men, more deceivable than men. I mean, if we just did like a little history assignment, you know, and just like Googled all the stupid stuff that men and women have done in the history of the world, right? Some of you are like, some of the guys in the room are already pulling out their phone. They're like, that sounds fun. Let's do that. Find stuff about shooting off fireworks and all kinds of stupid stuff. If you go and, and you look up all the, all the ways that men and women have been deceived and done stupid stuff in the history of the world, men, the stats aren't leaning in our favor, okay? Let's put it that way. Men and women were both created in God's image, equal in essence, being, and worth. One's not more deceivable than the other. Paul's point isn't look what Eve did. His point is look what Adam didn't do. Adam was formed first. Then Eve. And just as Adam was to watch over and oversee the garden, guarding from the evil one, so male elders are to watch over and oversee the church, guarding from the evil one. Ladies in the room, just because God has called men into that role, it in no way means that you're a second-class human. Both men and women are essential to creation, are essential to humanity, and essential to the mission of God. In Genesis 2, after God created Adam, he says in Genesis 2 verse 18, it's not good that man should be what? Alone. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. And when he did, when he did, he didn't create Evan. He created Eve. 
When Adam saw the helper that God created for him, he didn't say, bruh. And then they go off and do stupid stuff together and shoot off fireworks. No, he created Eve. And together, they're to fulfill the mission of God. There's a beautiful necessity here for Eve, equal to the beautiful necessity here for Adam. So it is with men and women in the church. Both are needed, valued, essential. Look at verse 15 in our text. It says, yet she, talking about Eve, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There's a lot that we could say about that verse. One thing we ought to consider in the flow of the argument here in 1 Timothy 2 is that part of what it means to be saved through childbearing has to do with the fact that through childbearing, the line of the Messiah would come. Man, just in case you're a little slow on the uptake here, we, we, we couldn't have done that on our own, right? Another way to say it, ladies, when talking about your beautiful necessity is that the plan of salvation runs through you. The mission of God does not go forward without women. And that in no way reduces the importance of women to childbearing, just in case you were wondering. Your beautiful necessity goes beyond childbearing and childrearing. Your contribution to the mission of God isn't limited or restricted to your motherly instincts. No, it's the opposite. Paul's highlighting here one essential aspect of your personhood with respect to the mission of God. God's also given you wisdom. He's given you insight, ladies. He's given you intelligence and perspective and discernment and desire and drive and the whole host of spiritual gifts to be stewarded for God's glory and all our good. If we think Eve, if we think of Eve as a helper, like in Genesis 2.18, like it refers to her as, sometimes we tend to think of helper in, in a negative way, don't we? Like in an inferior way. At my house, we have this little book. Um, it's in the Golden Book series. You know those little kids' books, the Golden Book series? And, and it's called We Help Daddy. All right, it's all about daddy's little helper. And so the whole book, I love the book. You know, it's, it's all about the, this dad. He's doing all these chores. He's trimming the hedges. He's mowing the lawn. He's smoking a pipe the whole time because the book's from the 60s. You can't make books like that anymore. You just can't do it, right? Um, but we, we get this idea sometimes of daddy's little helper, like, like uh, the helper is just supposed to follow the man around and, and like help him out in all the little ways, like hand him the shears or something like that, right? Listen, the Bible doesn't intend for helper to be inferred in a negative way at all. Helper in Genesis, that word does not signify inferiority. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament, the Lord himself is described as the helper of Israel. And it's the same word as used in Genesis 2.18. He's Israel's strength. Israel is dependent upon the helper. Israel cannot do anything without the helper. And so when you think about Eve as woman or helper, think ally. But not with any of the cultural baggage that the last two years have loaded into that word. Think military context. Think someone who comes alongside and is needed, is necessary. Think together, think dependence, strength, and support. This is the beautiful necessity of both men and women in accordance with God's created order. Now, lastly, what does all this mean practically here? Well, to answer that question, we have to be able to answer another question. What kind of teaching today is authoritative and doctrinal? Okay, if that's what's prohibited, what does that mean here? And as we read and apply the Bible, we'd answer in a primary way the preaching of God's word in the context of corporate worship. In fact, a high view of preaching, like understanding what it, what it means, like the significance of what is happening when we gather together in this place of opening God's word and expositing it and, and declaring and proclaiming what it says, a high view of that and the role that that has in the context of the gathered church actually frees us to have a lot more freedom as we seek to empower women outside the pulpit on Sunday mornings to use their giftings, especially the gifting of teaching. So preaching... And then we would also include in here administering baptism and communion, meaning leading those ordinances, presiding over them, explaining them, in part because 
baptism brings with it the authoritative role or stamp of approval upon what, who is and who isn't to the best of our ability to discern a true believer. That's also why elders perform baptism interviews. And then the table is a place where we affirm that week after week. We affirm it. It's also why elders fence the table, warning those who are not following after Jesus to not partake, lest they become guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11. That doesn't preclude women from serving the communion elements, like was our normal pre-COVID practice. It doesn't preclude women from participating physically in baptizing someone, like you've seen over and over in this church. In this category of authoritative doctrinal instruction, we would also include teaching our membership class, teaching any class where the intention is on establishing or clarifying doctrine in the church. And honestly, that's about it. Beyond those areas, non-elder men and women ought to be encouraged, equipped, and empowered to use their gifts, including the gift of teaching. Likewise, then, what kind of leading is in view with respect to exercising authority? Well, shepherding the flock, the oversight of church discipline, conducting membership interviews, setting the direction of the church, the vision of the church, the decisions that are made that impact the, the whole church, not without input from others, both male and female, non-elders, but in the end, making the decisions. And that's about it. Men and women serve as deacons around here. Men and women write our liturgy, lead liturgy, corporate worship, lead teams of people in areas of ministry. And so here's the conclusion that I want to drive home for us here. And this is fleshed out in the position paper that I said we'll share. But after careful study of this text in 1 Timothy 2 and, and the others that I've referenced throughout the way this morning and reasoning from these scriptures, we've concluded that women are biblically permitted to do anything a non-elder man can do in the context of leadership in the local church. And therefore, both men and women are encouraged to serve Christ and to be developed to their full potential in the manifold mysteries of the people of God. Reciprocally, and biblically, this means that a non-elder man should be restricted from doing anything a woman cannot do in the context of leadership in the local church, lest we find ourselves to be hypocrites. And practically, we already do a lot of this, right? Um, but hopefully this is clarifying. Almost all of our leadership contexts are open to both men and women, except for our elder development process. Our, our leadership development nights are. Porterbrook, when we ran that, that was our classroom series that we've done, GC leader coaching nights, gospel community clusters, and so on. But I also need to say something about gospel communities um, under the category of establishing and clarifying with respect to leadership. And we'll talk about this, we'll talk about gospel communities more next week, but the leadership aspect is relevant today. Throughout the history of our church, um, we've been murky and then clear and, and then murky again, probably about women leading in the context of a gospel community. That dates back originally to how we used to talk about gospel community leaders. Essentially, treating gospel community leaders when we first started as under-shepherds of the shepherds. When we first started Two Pillars, we, we sort of approached gospel community leaders like pseudo-pastors. Asking our GC leaders to essentially shepherd their gospel communities. The problem with that is that the Bible doesn't have an ecclesiological category for gospel community leader. We made it up. Right? Um, and the further problem is that our gospel community leaders are not all called to shepherd the flock. The elders are. Now, that doesn't mean that some of our gospel community leaders aren't skilled with giftings of shepherding and care. Some of them very much are. But not all of them are, nor are we saying they have to be. It's not their responsibility. So we made a few changes. A, 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 we made a change a few years ago in how we talk about gospel community leaders. And now the way that we describe a gospel community leader is one who cultivates an environment for making, maturing, and unleashing missionary disciples who live with gospel faithfulness to the glory of God. And they love and care for and counsel as they're gifted, the people in their group, yes and amen. But the responsibility for shepherding the people of that group ultimately rests upon the elders. In case you're wondering, gospel community leader is not an authoritative leadership role like Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy 2. And so one practical change that you can be anticipating is us moving in the direction of having in each two pillars gospel community trained male and female leadership. 
In a lot of our gospel communities, that's functionally already the case. Okay, and you're like, what's the big deal? Okay, well, listen, in others, it's murky. And in still others, it's not present or clearly identified. But that's the direction that we're desiring to head in, to have gospel communities not just have a male leader, not just have a female leader, but have complementary male and female leadership. Sometimes that'll be a married couple. At other times, it could be a combination of singles and marrieds, with one spouse being a leader and the other not, depending on giftings. It's going to take us some time, and we want to be patient along the way, but that's the direction that we're heading as we continue to live on mission together in complementary ways for the glory of Jesus. Let me close where we began. God has blessed us all, men and women together, with a vast variety of spiritual gifts. And we seek to nurture, equip, and empower the use of those gifts for his glory and our good within the proper boundaries that Scripture provides for the local church. The boundaries that Scripture provide are not a slippery slope. They provide a rock-solid foundation for us to stand upon and operate from as we lean into the very special ways that God has gifted and wired all of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it's never changing. That in a world of change, your, your word never changes. It's steady and sure. It's a lighthouse that guides our way. Spirit, I pray for our hearts right now to be open, perhaps, to this teaching, to study and give ourselves to the diligent study and reasoning from the scriptures as we try to interpret ones that seem less clear in light of ones that are more clear. Spirit, would you fan into flame the gifts that you have given to the men in this body? Would we as men labor well in stewarding our gifts towards the flourishing of all your people in this church? Would we celebrate and cultivate a culture of biblical masculinity and lead well? And would we also labor well in encouraging and empowering the gifts you have given to women in this room? Would we celebrate and help cultivate a culture of biblical femininity here that is in true accord with your word? And Spirit, would you also fan into flame the gifts that you have given the women in this body? Would they, as women, labor well in stewarding their gifts towards the flourishing of all your people in this church? Would they celebrate and cultivate a culture of biblical femininity and lead well? Will they also labor well in encouraging and empowering the gifts you have given the men in this room? Will they celebrate and help cultivate a culture of biblical masculinity here that is in true accord with your word? And would the young boys and young men, young girls and young ladies grow up in this church with a healthy biblical view of what it means to be a biblical man and a biblical woman? in a culture that is so confused about the topic? Would they understand what it means to be equal in essence, being, and worth, and yet distinct, with distinct and complementary roles? And when they learn to use the gifts that you've given them for your glory and others' good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.